Hi, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudell Vasquez, and Devin Trudell's on the sound. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with writer Oscar Hokia about his debut novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance, published by the Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Welcome, Oscar. Uh, thank you for thank being you, here. Uh, is it uh, okay? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited. excited. Is it okay if I read your bio before we get started? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Oscar Hokia is a citizen of Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa tribe of Oklahoma from his mother's side and has Mexican heritage from his father's side. He holds an MA in English with a concentration in Native American literature from the University of, of Oklahoma and a BFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts. He is a recipient of the Truman Capote Scholarship through IAIA and a winner of the Native Writer Award from the Taos Writers Conference. His short stories have been published in South Dakota Review, American Short Fiction, Yellow Medicine Review, Surreal South, and the Red Ink Magazine. He works with Indian Child Welfare in Tahlequa, Oklahoma. Find him at oscarhokia.com. Oscar, it's a pleasure, and I want to make sure that I pronounced uh, the tribe and your city correctly. Uh, so please correct me if I did not. No, you did great. You did. You did good. All right. So, Oscar, I had a, a friend, and he would always ground us in ceremony and poetry. And because this is fiction, I wondered if you could read the opening epitaph of your book and share with sure. our listeners about why you selected this particular excerpt. Okay. Yeah, so it is um, by M. Scott Mamaday, and it is from House Made at Dawn. They have assumed the names and gestures of their enemies, but have held on to their own secret souls. And in this, there is a re resistance and an overcoming, a long outwaiting. Mm. So that's by, you know, in Scott Mamaday and House Made at Dawn. And um, I chose that because. Um, the characters in the novel are very much, you know, um, struggling for survival and and in a place where they're um, dealing with some historical trauma and, um, uh, you know, helping each other overcome some of those residuals of, of colonization. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. It was a beautiful opening. Um, can you, Oscar, tell us how this book came to be? And, and why you structured it in this way, with every chapter being the name of the character speaking. Yeah. So, yeah, the the, chap the the novel is structured where you have 12 different chapters, and every chapter has a different narrator. And um, each narrator is a family member. So the main character, his name is Evergina Saddle. And, um, and so the first chapter is told by the grandmother, second chapter by grandfather, and then um, you know, like uncles, aunties, cousins, uh, siblings, until you get to the last chapter where we hear from Ever Gimasato himself. Mm. And um, and so the the novel started way back 14 years ago in 2008 when I was at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I had um, decided I wanted to write some stories about home. Um, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time because that's where I, I located. And... Um, and so I started, the earliest chapter was Quentin Quitone's chapter. 
And, um, and so whenever we turned 18 in the tribe, the Kiowa tribe, we got a per cap. And I was like, well, I'm going to write it. I want to write a Kiowa specific story. So I'm going to write about that per cap. Hmm. And a per cap is where we get like a certain amount of money from the tribe. And sometimes with tribes, it might be, you might get some small amount like every month or, and it, it, with us, it was just a one-time thing that happened when we turned 18. Um, and so I wrote that chapter. That was the earliest one. And, um, in 2008 and then wrote the second oldest in 2009. And so at that time I was just basically working on my craft mm-hmm. and was just writing these, these two, um, stories, these kind of standalone stories, um, to, to develop my craft and, and to capture a Kiowa specific, um, narrative and then also, and then next the Cherokee specific, um, um, story as well. And so the second oldest in the novel, it's chapter three, it's Hayes Shades chapter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so at that time, I, that's basically what I was juggling. I was going to interconnect these two stories. They were going to be on the same character, but they were going to be uh, from two different locations. Um, so it just kind of started off like that. And then later in 2013, I decided to make it more like a kind of a traditional novel and stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I titled it Reflections on the Water, and it was more of a, a juxtaposition between a mother and a son. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really much of a, of a narrative arc at that point. But then um, I went through a writer's block and just start, you know, stopped writing and then started writing again on this same character in 2015. And that's whenever it started to become like it is now, okay. where we have, um, we have, you know, a trajectory, like we have Evergema Settle on this trajectory where um, he's making some choices that aren't, that aren't great. And he's getting more and more aggressive and his family has to step in in the way we do with, you know, all of our family. Like if we see somebody who's going out of control, we, we each do our part to try to help them get back on track. And that's the, that's the main um, um, premise of the novel is that we have each family member, you know, these, in these 12 different narrators or the 11, 11 different family members, each offering a different type of healing strength mm-hmm. um, so that ever, ever Gima Saddle can continue to fight for himself and his children and um, but it was in 2015 where it became where I could see that it was like a decolonization narrative, mm. and um, and I could see the transformation story starting to happen, and that's whenever I decided to to, to make it into what it is now. Um, wow. So that's kind of the back, you know, a little bit of the back mm-hmm. history on on its development. That is so fascinating. Um, I just want to remark on one: we both went to IAIA, but at different times. And we'll talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Um, but like you, I, I have, you know, Mexican-American heritage. And I found mm-hmm. in reading these chapters, I saw my family. And I saw the generational trauma and the colonization. And it, it really um, did something to my heart. And um, oh. I thank you for that. Yeah. Um, no, it, thank you. Yeah. It was very moving. And I think um, let's let's hear from... The first chapter, if you could, um, on page 26, just read that third paragraph for our WORT audience. Okay. All right. So um, so at this point in the novel, we're just starting out. So like I had mentioned before, it's Evergema Settle's grandmother who's narrating. Her name is Lena Stott. And, um, and so she is, so this is a little bit about, you know, kind of her perspective mm-hmm. and um, and some of the um, back and forth that she is going through with 
her daughters, who would be Turtle Gima Saddle's, I mean, Ever Gima Saddle's mother, Turtle, and um, and then his aunt, which would be uh, Lila Gima Saddle. So I'll, I'll just read this paragraph. The girls know you have the money, he said. Certainly, I did well, selling hand-stitched quilts, enough to pay all my bills and start a savings account. I wasn't much for going out. The occasional stomp dance was my biggest venture, and mostly I did that to catch up with friends and family, and I'd never been one to pass up on a hog fry at a stomp. Couldn't go wrong with good food. This only cost me gas money to get out toward Vianne. I lived modestly and had more interest in making my quilts than anything else. It felt good to know I helped someone stay warm in the winters, and then there was the look of awe when people saw my quilts. If anything... I like giving people a sense of safety, and quilts were important for healing. Folks were willing to pay a lot of money for mine. Mm, thank you. The reason I asked for that section is because yeah. it ties the title, the importance of the quilts. And I, we got to talk about this title because I was so taken by this cover. Why this cover, Oscar? And can you say something about the artist who made it? Yeah, so the artist her name is Kristen Apodaca she's from El Paso Texas and she does these really beautiful murals and um and so they're on the like sides of buildings around town and um, but she also does like you know um paintings and, and things like that as well so um, her style of art is more of a, like a postmodern type of style and because you know like i mentioned with the structure of this novel that it the, the novel itself is very postmodern it's very much literary fiction and so Algonquin had, you know, they had had her on her on their radar um, for a while. And then whenever my book came in, they thought it would be a good match. Like her postmodern style of art and this postmodern style of, of writing. And um, so they reached out to her. And basically what they did, they just gave her the book and she read it. And she had to come up with an image to, um, to represent the main character. And so and she did a beautiful job. So if anyone who's seen the cover, um, it's an image of a face, and so the face is kind of split in half, mm-hmm. and there's a dollar, couple dollar bill that's coming out of the top of the head, but there's also a sash, a gore dance sash that's red and blue mm-hmm. coming out as well, and so it, it, it captures really well the main character's internal struggle in the novel, where he is, like I mentioned before, on this trajectory where he's you know, making some mistakes and overcoming some obstacles. Fate is kind of knocking him back down, but his family's there to pick him back up. Um, but he's he's struggling, and he starts to try to figure out how to live with honor. So that dollar bill, um, whenever we're at our gort dances, what we do is that whenever we honor someone, we crumple up a dollar bill, we walk up to them, we drop the dollar bill at their feet, and then we'll stand next to them and we'll dance next to them. And so there could be, you know... 20, 30 people um, who come up and do that, and they'll all stand in a, in a long line next to each other and dance next to this individual that we're honoring. Um, and so that crumpled dollar bill becomes a symbol, a symbol of this character trying to figure out how to live with honor. And because that gore dance sash is coming out of the face as well, um, it's inextricably tied to his culture and his community and his family. Um, so, And then with the face split in half, we have, you know, this sense of fracture, um, the historical trauma, but also the sense of healing as well. Like he's coming together. You could see, you know, see it in either context. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that there's this healing process that's happening as well. But, you know, like you had mentioned before that, you know, it has a representation um, with regard to, to Lena's, stop, uh, Lena's um, quilts mm-hmm. that we had just mentioned in that, in that reading. Um, 
So Lita makes these grandchild quilts. And in on these grandchild quilts, what she does is she makes images of birds on them because in the in the Cherokee culture, we have a clan system. So um, like we have a long hair clan and a paint clan, a blue clan. We also have a bird clan. And so um, Lena Stop is a part of the bird clan. And so um, what she wants to do is teach her, her grandchildren that they belong to the to the Cherokee community, to the Cherokee culture, and she's using these birds as symbols for that. But on the cover, that face is sitting on top of a grid pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's on top of that grid pattern, what, what it's exemplifying is it's, it's basically one of Lena's quilts. Wow. And so... Um, and so that that's how it connects into that passage that we just read. But it connects throughout the throughout the novel as well. It shows back up. Those quilts show back up. Um, and, and tied to, like you mentioned, with the title calling for a blanket dance tied to these blanket dances mm-hmm. um, where we have um, where we have community members coming together in order to help each other. So that's what the blanket dance ritual is about. So and I can just explain that just really quick mm-hmm. where. Um, whenever we have a blanket dance at, at the at the at the powwows, especially these traditional ones, um, are the ones that I'm really um, referencing here. So the powwows that you see in, in my novel, um, they're really intimate. They're small, you know. They're um, they're not real, you know, like massive where you have you know thousands and thousands of people. Um, the the societies that are there, they're all basically have known each other their entire lives. Mm. Um, these fam- these families are interconnected and have been interconnected for generations been interconnected for hundreds of years. So we've been practicing the same ritual with the same family networks for hundreds of years. Um, so we, basically, you, you know most of the people there. Um, so the ritual is where we'll set out a blanket on the powwow ground. Uh, the drummers will play a song. And as they're playing that song, um, you're invited up to come and place a little bit of um, money or something, a little bit of money on the blanket to help someone out. Mm. So let's say somebody... Um, um, has to get to their um, dialysis treatment, mm-hmm. but they don't have the gas money to get there, and and they need some help to get gas money in order to make it to their to their, their appointments for the week. Um, so they'll have an individual come up and they'll say, "Hey, can you come out and honor this individual? Let's let's help out this person; they're in need right now." And um, so they'll start the song, and then you'll come up and you'll offer what you can onto the blanket. And so the novel itself is structured around that concept where we have different family members, each chapter that passes steps up and says, hey, this is what I'm trying to give you, Everett. You must settle the main character um, and so that you can continue to um, to do to get on the right path and start to do well for your family. Um, and so, you know, that all kind of comes together in that cover that you mentioned. Um, so we mm-hmm. see it in that first passage that we just read. Mm-hmm. But it, like I said before, it comes up again later. And then once you've read the entire novel mm-hmm. and you see the, you see the ritual play out, you can come back and you look at that cover and then it like, it all kind of really ties together and it really starts to make sense. Oscar, you just offered us such a rich tapestry of words and, and culture and insight. And it, it is stunning um, to see how it ties in, and I I went back and reread portions of it and looked at the chart to really understand. But thank you. That is a gift to our audience who is unfamiliar, and um, and I don't know if they know that's such a gift, but it is. And I wanted to remark on the fact that there's so many poignant scenes in this and multiple voices, but your ability to depict women in particular in such a meaningful mm-hmm. and honest way 
and I don't know if other people have commented on this, but you created female characters that were so alive they felt real to me. Um, <laughs> and not everyone can do that. So um, how do you get into the voices and body and feelings of your characters who you don't share the same gender with? Yeah, it's a really good question. And that actually other people have brought that up. That okay. Mentioned that, that dynamic. So, um, and I think a part of it has to do with my upbringing. You know, like I am, I am the only boy in my immediate family. Mm. So like I have two, sis- I have two sis- sisters. And then also my, um, when I was growing up for a long period of time, I lived with my, my uh, two grandmothers. So I had two grandmothers in the home. And so I guess it's a lot of it has to do just with the comfortability there, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a familiarity. Mm-hmm. And um, and then a lot in the, these characters are largely based on um, people that I that I know, you know, like their foundational um, characterization is based on someone that I grew up with. Um, so um, so basically, I you know kind of channel you know their energy and um, and just write in a way that that I feel like captures um, the the spirit of, you know, the, of the individuals that I care about mm-hmm. in, in my own community and my own family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, Cherokee nation, you know, Cherokee historically um, was a matriarchal um, um, society. Mm-hmm. And then we have those remnants still continue to exist today. So we have very strong matriarchs in the community. And, um, and I think it's just, you know, habituation to being in that environment my mm-hmm. entire life mm-hmm. um, it kind of and it, I think that, that it shows up on the page mm. it's such a um, a counter to the um, masculine toxicity that exists in certain portions of the of the book as mm-hmm. well yeah yeah uh, I am uh, really interested too in how you weave real events into the fictional account um, can mm-hmm. you read from page 112? Uh, starting at the first paragraph where we hear, hear Turtle speaking and up to the top of page uh, 113. Okay, yeah, I will do that. Okay. On my lunches at work, I would go down to the basement floor of the Indian hospital and sit outside on a patio at the only table. I always drank exactly one can of Pepsi and thought about my son. In the mornings, he made Six sandwiches, three for himself, three for his friends. He packed two bottles of Diet Mountain Dew so he could share his lunch and sit in his car in the broiling afternoon sun with Mr. Boo Wright. When news broke about the Oklahoma City bombing, he and Boo Wright were eating lunch. Initially, he thought the announcer was lying to impress the audience, mistaking the announcer's nervous pitch as fake. Cheap guy, my son said. It was too far-fetched to believe so he said back to the radio, "You don't have to lie," like it was the War of the World, War of the Worlds radio show that had tricked people into believing the planet was being invaded by aliens. This time, there was no trickery. Oklahoma City had been bombed. Mm. I heard the I heard the bombing later on the evening news after work. I never understood the rage coming from men, and likely never will, or how men abused men and then called children collateral damage. There were times when I would think of him at his lunch while on my own until I finished my can of Pepsi and went back upstairs to the medical records department so that I could type and paste labels for the files. Oh, thank you, Oscar. Yeah. That 
Uh, I remember that. I definitely remember that. Why did you feel the need to include this in the novel, this particular um, situation, the, the bombing? Yeah, the Oklahoma City yeah. bombing that happened in um, 1994. Mm-hmm. And um, so, well, you know, like it's significance to us here in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like every year it's a, it's a really big event. Like we memorialize, you know, the individuals who were lost. And one of the situations that occurred um, in that bombing was that there were Timothy McVeigh had parked the truck was in front of a daycare. Mm-hmm. And so there was, an, you know, children that had passed away and um, because of that. And so whenever he was interviewed and he was asked about those children, that's what he called them. He called oh. them collateral damage. Wow. I did and not so know. that's why that. Yeah, that's why that's in the in the novel. Um, and so it, it, you know, it speaks of this larger dynamic that's happening in the novel as well that we have, um, like you had mentioned before, there are these um, elements of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. that happen within there. It's definitely like um, deconstructing patriarchy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so that particular scene becomes super important because it's this, um, it's this larger kind of clash of violent mm-hmm. clash where we have um, men doing these really large violent things um, and in this, in, in, you know, whatever name that they're doing it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it's still violence, you know, um, and for the, you know, for um, the person speaking in that chapter is Turtle Gimasuttle, Ever Gimasuttle's mother. Mm-hmm. And to her, she's, she's struggling with seeing that rise of aggression in her own son. Mm-hmm. Um and seeing how he's taken on some of the patterns that um, that her her own father, uh, Vincent Gimasaddle, had at one point, but also his own biological father as well. Um, so she's kind of contending with those um, those um, dynamics playing out in her son's life. Oscar, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I forgot that Timothy McVeigh referred to the children as collateral damage. Um, mm-hmm. He did. I really, yeah. I forgot about that, but... Um, I have that in a poem. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, so that's one thing that um, it's it's really specific, really Oklahoma specific. Mm-hmm. And I do that a lot in the novel where I get really tribally specific, really Oklahoma specific. Mm-hmm. So someone who's reading that from Oklahoma will, you know, who you know, because we go, you know, we um, go through this every year where we're remembering and we're memorializing um, the individuals who had passed. That we remember that. You know, like that's something that sticks out to us. And yeah. um, and so I think, you know, someone from Oklahoma would, you know, quickly like pick up, oh, yeah, he did say that about the kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. I I have a poem where I have that in there, but um, it, it was different. I'm from Iowa originally, and it was pretty close. Okay. And we remember, and it was pretty horrific. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. It was just unbelievable. It was like, like it says in that passage where it was like a world of the world's type radio show situation where you're like, yeah. did that, they just say that? Yeah. That, you know, Oklahoma City got bombed? You know, like that mm-hmm. it didn't make sense. And um, and actually that particular scene, um, to a large extent, was pulled out of my own personal life. I was working at Greenleaf Nursery, and mm. just like the character was in the novel, and I heard it on my lunch, mm. you know, and in the exact same way that the main character does in this, in this particular scene. Um, whenever and I had that reaction, like I didn't believe yeah. what they were saying. So, 
Yeah. I like how you're time traveling in here with time, but you also bring back War of the Worlds and um, people of a certain age may remember that that was aired and people really believed it happened and there was a bunch of disclaimers. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to go back to you said something about this being a postmodern novel, which I really love you saying that like there's so much power and intellectualism and heart in this piece and on all these Mm -hmm. pieces. Yeah. Very, very high art. Oscar, you said there was a portion that you wanted to read, um, and I would like if you um, could turn to that portion that you want to read, because I want to make sure you have time to do that. This is about you and introducing you to the um, Wart um, audience and in preparation for you to come for the Wisconsin Book Festival next month, and um, we really want them to have a, a bit of an idea of who you are, how you write, and what they need to do to make sure they come see you. Okay, yeah, and so this is, I mean, this is a good one to, to start up now because it, it's a more lighthearted, you know, and, it, you know, we can get a little bit of the, get a little bit of the humor and the fun um, dynamics that kind of play out in different portions of the novel as well. Um, and so I'll, I'll read for about five, six minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the portion that I'm going to read is the chapter for Quentin Quitone. And so this is chapter five in the novel. And at this point, um, Quentin Quitone is Everett Gimasato's cousin. And so Everett Gimasato and his cousin Quentin, they had just, they have just turned 18 years old. And, um, and like I had mentioned before, whenever the Kiowa tribe gave us the per cap, we got it at age 18. So this is their experience and what they, kind of encountered with dealing with that per cap. So I'll go ahead and okay. I'll go ahead and just and read that. Read a little bit into that chapter. Okay, Quentin Quito, nineteen ninety three. Yeah, we were just little guys. Around a year old when Kyle was started getting that a hong yeah. Back in seventy six. No, maybe in seventy seven. It was a coalition of Kiowas, Comanches, and Apaches that leased a track of land at Fort Sill military base for 100 years. Good thing, too, because this Kiowas divided our share of the money between all tribal members, 1500 apiece. Those of us under the age of 18 had our money held in trust, growing interest until our day. We were the last in our families to hear our mothers say, your per cap check is on the table. My birthday landed two months before yours. On your day, you burst into a laughing fit, and I told you, ever, calm yourself down, guy. On my day, I simply said, your boy Quentin just got paid, and I maintained all the way into the bedroom. But we both tore into those envelopes faster than the last meat pie on a plate, ripped out those stiff government checks, too. Remember the Statue of Liberty imprint in the upper left corner? Remember the line of numbers in the center right? Mine was $9,826.17. The hot off the press scent from that crisp paper hit us like a cool wall of air when we walked into the Bank of Oklahoma. Might know, the lady behind the counter did the same to you as she did to me. She glanced from the check to her face and back to the check again, tapping those red plastic fingernails on the counter. Her eyes barely squinted when she asked us how we managed to get our hands on that kind of money. You told her the tribe wanted us to help neglected bank tellers buy bleach for untreated roots. I had a permanent grin that no one would spoil. So I asked her if she dated Kaiwas, and she said no. So I asked her if she dated Comanches, 
And she said no. So I asked her if she dated Cherokees, and she said no. Guess <laughs> I was out of luck because I was all out of tribes. We waved at the bank teller as we pushed open the doors. That mob ain't pretended to not notice. Still, even she couldn't ignore the 6000 in the checking account or the 4000 in our pockets. Wasn't it our oldest cousin, Leanne, who put her entire per cap in savings? Or maybe it was her sister, Bessie. They saved the money for books and tuition at the University of Oklahoma. We had been dreaming about spending that at Hongia for three years since our boy Blacktail's older brother, Big Bo, got his per cap. He cruised into the south side of Lawton, our section of the city, to view in a Cadillac Seville. That Cadillac was new used, uptown, clean enough to pass for brand new. Deep guy, too, as he bumped down 11th Street and turned into the convenience store on three-wheel motion. Right then, that's when we knew we were not like Leanne and Bessie. On my day, my dad warned me, Quentin, fast money goes fast. And he drove us to OKC, where I could find a good car cheap. It took us an hour, hour and a half to drive up I-44, and I flashed open that bank envelope a dozen times, showing you and Dad both how the hundreds lined up as smooth as beads on a loom. On your day, I drove you to OKC myself. We were going to turn money into a line of colognes, hundreds, fifties, and twenties, bottled and packaged. Your Monte Carlo sat middle row front at Honest Harry's dealership. You grabbed my arm so tight, I lost circulation, said, Quentin, pull over, six times. That dealer was bullheaded about the $3,000 price written on the windshield. What about 2500 cash? He took the Fresh Bills Bulldog and signed over the title to your money. My Cadillac Eldorado dripped clean from a fresh car wash, gleamed gold with that tan paint job in the bright sunlight. It faced the main office at Classy Cars. The dealer wanted to take it home until I flashed open that bank envelope. He took 4000 easy. Didn't even have to haggle for my L-Dog. Once back in Lawton, you still had cash in your pocket after buying your car. But on my day, I had to stop by the Bank of Oklahoma again. That same teller said I had to wait three days for a check to clear. Why did she give me 4000 the day before? I asked to see the manager. Oh, it was a government check, that Ma Bain told me. She flipped her long hair to the other side of her face and pulled 2000 from the drawer. At Soundwave, it cost me some serious cash for those 12-inch speakers, that 400-watt amp, a noise reducer, and an equalizer. My base was clean and low, but I only had enough money left over for gas and McDonald's. You liked your music hard and dirty, so you dropped the last of that 1500 for some 18s inside a plexiglass box. Low on funds, we weaved through the back roads of Lawton and returned to the Bank of Oklahoma. Was it on your per cap or mine when we ran to the building one minute before closing? That teller was already locking the doors. She gave us a smirk, spun on her heels, and disappeared into the bank. We cruised away blasting the latest tape by the Zotai singers and shook the building with waves of intertribal beats. We hit the back roads again, crept into the view, and parked on Blacktail's front lawn. That intertribal wave carried with the same rumble of those artillery shells from the practice rounds at Fort Sill, the ones that shook the entire city of Lawton. Proud guys who danced the way Kyle was danced and reminisced about percaps gone by. It was funny how our boy Mike's older brother, Arthur, went down to Dallas, Texas, bought an old school T-Bird, 
and tricked it out with the blue and silver colors of the Dallas Cowboys football team. After partying for a week in a motel, he went to a Cowboys football game, ate all, jumped all, and lost the last of his perk cap in the stands. Dad had a Western Union him money so he could get back to Lawton. Everyone teased him that some goofy, rugged guy probably ripped him off. Even worse, too, was our cousin Lawrence from Godibo. Mr. All Day Adol, he bought that dually truck, slapped on a new set of mud-bogging tires, and took his little crew to Tahlequah for Cherokee National Holiday. He danced at the powwow and then watched the bronc riders at the rodeo. On the last day, he woke up in a field, face down in a wet cow patty. The first thing he said was, buh, <laughs> and a clump of patty fell out of his mouth. I'll stop right there. Okay, I was really trying to not laugh, but uh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think, they're, yeah, they're 18, you know, <laughs> and whenever, and you, and, you know, they, you know, like myself, you know, they grew up in poverty, and mm-hmm. when you get $9,000, it's like you just won the lottery. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so and so that's kind of what they're they're going through. And uh, they're a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, but in but the best it's, way. It's a fun. Yeah. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, they're, uh, Quentin is a funny character. Like, he likes to joke yeah. around. Well, I think, too, like, you know, there are funny parts in the novel, for sure. I was laughing out loud at certain times. Um, and if we have intergenerational trauma, we have certainly intergenerational joy and laughter. And, mm-hmm. and uh, That's our families are the funniest. I, I, I know that I laugh my myself to death often with my family but yes thank you for bringing some lightness in and um i see why you wanted to read that and i love how you changed your voice uh with the with that character that was good yeah i wanted to capture the you know the kind of, you know and, and, and a lot of times it kind of depends on my environment like I'll, i talk like that when i'm with my cousins on my college side mm-hmm. that's how i talk <laughs> and then so it, it just depends on circumstance on um, but yeah, the, I wanted to capture, that was the, like I mentioned earlier, but that, that was the earliest chapter that I had written. And I wanted to capture like our colloquial kind of uh, vernacular, mm-hmm. like the way we, you know, Kiowa and Comanche talk, um, and, um, and just kind of get that onto the page. And cause it's just such a unique, um, rich accent and, um, and just wanted to show audiences that. What I like too, in your book is, uh, y- you don't offer like you know, a guide to the words. It is what it is. And my mm-hmm. husband noticed that too. Mm-hmm. Like you can understand from the context. You don't need to know what every word means. And the other thing we we noticed, and he did too, is you depict the lives of working class people, right? And it's written without any yeah. judgment. Like we're looking at mm-hmm. folks who work in service positions, fast food, or how people spend money or make bad decisions. But there's no judgment. It's just you're depicting it as you see it. And I don't feel yeah. any judgment. Yeah, that's that was super important. I mean, I feel like this novel is an homage to the working class, you know, regardless of, of race that, you know, across the board, you know, we have there's a certain set of circumstances whenever, um, you know, you're living under certain economic stress mm-hmm. and you don't have resources, you don't have access um, that we have, you know, a, you know, I guess just a certain type of obstacles that we that we encounter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I wanted to capture that, you know, that was, a, you know, super important for me to, 
to be in advocacy for the working class in this novel. And just because, you know, that's how, that's the environment that I grew up in, a working poor environment. You know, everybody worked, but we didn't make a ton of money, but we made ends meet. Mm-hmm. And then when we when we fell on hard times, we helped each other out. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's, that was super important for me. And it's really beautiful, too. Um, I I think about my own working class roots, and um, I'm mm-hmm. second and third generation Mexican-American from Iowa, and that's a whole other story. But um, I really appreciated how you depicted our people, for sure. Yeah. Um, I also want to ask you about process. You've talked a little bit about it, and I heard an interview where you said you felt like editing was the real, or something about editing. And, and I personally mm-hmm. think editing is the real writing for me. Um, so I wanted to yeah. hear about that because I love to edit Oscar. I really do. Yeah. So the the revision process that's where the that's where the magic's at for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the initial draft, the first draft is is kind of labor intensive. You know, like I have to really work to get it out. And um, what spurs me to get it out is that I know that once I got it, you know, once I got the shape on the table, then I can start to carve it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, like, I, you know, I, I really enjoy the revision process because, th- you know, that's where a lot of those moments where things, you know, click mm-hmm. and they just kind of come together. The spirit of the novel starts to come out because these details like, um, like, you know, that where I, where I just read about the artillery shells in Lawton, um, because in, in Lawton, there's, you know, it's Fort Seal is connected to Lawton. So Lawton is like a military town, but Fort Seal is an artillery base. And so when they practice, it the practice rounds you know hit the ground, but it shakes the entire city. Mm. And for and I remember for a long time I was like, oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta work that in. That's such, such a specific thing for Lawton, mm-hmm. for people in Lawton. We we know that. Um, and then and then eventually, it, I figured it out. Like they're playing the music, they're playing the intertribal, the powwow music, and it's loud and it's, and it's bumping. And and the, and I like I compare that to the artillery shells, and so then it all kind of fit together. And then those moments when that happens, when it's like, oh, there it is, um, it's like exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And I have this you know, like this physical reaction, this adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when I'm revising, I run into that most often. It's the discovery process in our own work, I think, too. Um, and when you look back at your writings, you're like, oh. I've been writing about this quite often, and here it is. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. I wanted to um, talk a little bit about IAIA, Oscar, the Institute of American Indian Arts. And you went for your BFA, and I went for my MFA, um, and you were there as a young writer. Can you talk about the impact that had on you as an artist and as a writer? And for people that are tuning in, the Institute of American Indian Arts um, is a Native American art school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yes. Yeah, no, that was that experience was um, um, pivotal in my life. I mm-hmm. mean, as far as being, you know, development as a writer, um, it's the first space where I encountered literary fiction. Before then, when I first came in, I was, on this trajectory where I was writing horror, like native mm. type horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I started to, to um, dive into literary fiction, I just kind of fell in love with it. But, you know, IAI is a very unique space in that it's, you know, it centers on arts and different forms of arts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, like you had mentioned, it's intertribal. But you have natives from all over, you know, like um, from Latin America to Canada 
um, uh, to New Zealand. I, you know, we had we had um, um, students who were from New Zealand as well, and uh, and so because of that intertribal dynamic and it being centered around arts, um, it just creates a very unique space um, and a very open space where you can kind of explore whatever avenues you want to explore, and you have all of these different um, type of mediums. Um, to kind of compare and contrast off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, no, it was, you know, because of that dynamic, the intertribal dynamic, the arts element that, you know, was, um, you know, in the atmosphere at all times. And then just having like, you know, the instructors, um, the staff being, you know, very accommodating and trying to recreate um, almost like the, the native community you know, at the school, mm-hmm. um, it just created, a, you know, almost the perfect environment for me um, to develop myself um, as, as an artist. I felt so honored to go to that school um, and to be there for the time that I was. It felt like home. And that was the first time I had yeah. ever gone to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I remember taking that van thinking, I think I've arrived at my home. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, who, who did you study with there, Oscar? Um, so at that time, the head of creative writing was Evelina Zunlucero. Okay. And um, and then also um, John Davis was there mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was at that point in the in the BFA um, program, and he was um, heading up all the poetry writing courses and um, was doing that end of it. And um, and then on the indigenous, the liberal studies side was Stephen Wall. Mm-hmm. And so I have a minor in indigenous liberal studies. I actually have the very first minor ever out of that school. Nice. Because, um, because um, Steve Wall had been working on it, but the, you know, to get it set in place where students could get a minor in indigenous liberal studies. And then it just kind of all worked out where um, at the, you know, when he got it all finalized, it was my last semester at IAI, but I had been taking all my electives in Indigenous Global Studies because, you know, it spoke to larger thematics in creative writing. Mm-hmm. And so I found, you know, a lot of um, a lot of um, par- parallels, but, you know, just, um, you know, it allowed me to think deeply about my writing and my um, creative writing side. Mm-hmm. And so it worked out where I could take a certain number of classes in that last semester and end up walking out with the minor. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so me and Steve Wall, we connected really well. Me and Evelina Zuni Lucero, um, you know, you know, connected really well. And, you know, every once in a while I would email them even after I had graduated. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, those were the main figures that I, I John, but, you know, I went to yeah. school. Go ahead. Yeah. John Davis. But then I went to school with um, Lady Long Soldier. We graduated mm. the same year and Tacey at City. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we graduated the same year as well. So, um, so many of the individuals who are writing and publishing now and, you know, and getting some, some great recognition, some well-deserved recognition mm-hmm. were, were in, I was in classes with them. I got to tell you, Oscar, Lady Long Soldier's book, Whereas, I carried around in my backpack for like six months. It was so unbelievable mm-hmm. um, and powerful. It's very dog-eared, but it is one of my most favorite poetry books. So, um, and John Davis selected me to go get my MFA there, and that was life-changing for me as a writer. Um, that was yeah. really, I'm really grateful. Oscar, this has been such a wonderful time, and believe it or not, we've been talking for almost 44 minutes. Um, oh Yeah. <laughs> we're okay. We're fine. 
Um, I, I had mentioned that your characters reminded me of my own family and our trials and tribulations. Um, I'm the oldest of 30 first cousins. Um, so I was wondering if you could read from page 196, beginning at the top of the page. I think it's a, a good way to, to close our session together. And as you're getting that page, I'll remind folks that we're um, listening to Oscar Hokia read from Calling for a Blanket Dance and that you will be here on October 15th, correct? Correct, yeah, for the Wisconsin Book Festival. I'm excited about that. All right. Well, I hope Wisconsin turns out for you. And, okay, so I'll go ahead and I'll read this yeah. um, um, this page. So, um, later, ever asked me about the drawing. I told him, I don't want to be like my dad. Ever told me how a Cherokee mask had helped him overcome a fear of his father. The mask hung on his living room wall. I'd noticed it but never said anything. It kind of spooked me because to ask other Indians about ceremonial stuff. We were taught to never ask. When it was time to know, then elders would explain. Until then, never ask. Ever told me how his uncle gave him the booger mask to help him overcome his fear of his father's abuse. If we were echoes from one voice, we wouldn't carry very far, he said. We've echoed through endless generations because we are, we are constructed by the voices of many. I think of ever telling me that when I remember the canal picture I drew. That day, the counselor had a few questions for me, and so did the, th the three from the school board. By the end of the meeting, everyone had looked at my drawing. They all decided that I should get a second chance. Everyone deserves second chances, the principal said, with the drawing in her hands. But if you mess up even once, then you're out. You understand me, Leander? I nodded. I looked over at Everett and he had a smile on his face bigger than mine. Hmm. That is a, a lovely way for us to close out you reading from Calling for a Blanket Dance. Um, and uh, I do want to say it's been a joy to talk with you. And um, what um, do you know where you're doing the Wisconsin Book Festival? Are you at the library on the 15th? And do you know the time that you're um, going to be reading from your book? Um, I don't have those particular details yet. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I, I will be at the you know at the festival, and as I you know learn of those those specifics, I'll definitely like post on my okay. um, like my my social media stuff, so like Twitter. Um, my Instagram's growing pretty good. I've been on there quite a bit, trying to um, get that one a little bit bigger. Um, Twitter's where I'm out on quite frequently, but I also have Facebook. My Facebook, the thing about it is that it's at capacity now, mm. so it's hard to, I can't, it's hard to add people. Okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, definitely like Twitter, Instagram, and then on my, my website is about my, OscarHokia.com. Okay. Do you want to call out your handles for Instagram? And people can follow you on Facebook still, even if they can't be your friend, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. So they're all at Oscar Hokia. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, they're all the, just my name. And you have been writing so much success. You had the New York Times review. Um, is there a movie in the works, Oscar? Uh, uh, I, I, it'd be nice if there was. <laughs> um, I, so I don't have anything set okay. yet. Okay. Um, but, you know, the book it does have um, is with a film agent, film TV agent. Okay. Um, with curate management. And so, you know, like they're, they're working their magic. And so we'll see how it all kind of pans out. 
I would be surprised if this does not become a, a movie. I would be very surprised. Um, there's so that much here. That would be here. awesome. I'd be excited. It would be really <laughs> exciting. My husband and I watch Reservation Dogs um, frequently um, over and over yeah. again. And um, there are certain parts of your book that remind me of that. So um, everyone, if you're, if you're just tuning in, we've been speaking with Oscar Hokia. Um, author of Calling for a Blanket Dance. This book is going wild. You should get your own copy. He will be here on October 15th for the Wisconsin Book Festival. We will um, update the website with time, and I can look that up and put it on the podcast that I'll share with you later, Oscar. Um, But I want everyone to know that um, you have been listening to Madison Bookbeat. Stay tuned this afternoon for All Around Jazz with Alex Wilding White. The Insurgent Radio Kiosk is up next. I've been your host, Angie Trudell-Vasquez. Devin Trudell's been working the soundboard. Keep it tuned here to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Thank you so much, Oscar. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Angie. It was great to be here, and I'm excited to visit Wisconsin.